We are uh, in Matthew 6 this morning, so if you would turn, click, swipe, tap, or do what you need to do to navigate to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13, and uh, then we will, we will dig into those things. We'll pray and, and dig in. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We don't thank you enough that you are communicative God. You are a God who reaches down from your abode in the heavens and speaks. You've spoken to us through your prophets and your apostles. You've recorded those things for our benefit and for your glory. May we be people who are faithful to your word, that you might receive all your due. God, we pray this morning that you give us ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What sorts of conversations do you have? Um, I, I suppose there's four broad sorts of conversations we all have. Uh, the first type of conversation I think we all have is probably the most common. It's uh, the socially necessary conversation. It doesn't affect you much in the moment. And it won't likely be remembered by you as particularly important in your life. It's the, it's the little things like, hi, how are you? And good to see you. Which actually have very little meaning. I mean, how many times have you walked past a coworker or even somebody at church said, hi, how are you? Only for them to respond, hi, how are you? And neither one of you actually finds out how the other one is. It's just words that come out of our mouth. Um, but it's a social convention. It's sort of like the grease that keeps the gears of our culture going. If we stop these little rituals that we do, I'm pretty sure the gears would get mucked up and stop turning altogether. You disassociate yourself from those sort of casual interactions with other people, however meaningless they seem, and you'll quickly find yourself distanced from the deeper ones, and then you soon find yourself unhealthily impersonal. Sometimes these conversations go on a little bit, but the substance isn't too important. They are socio-relational lubrications. But then there's mutual conversations. There's conversations between people who, at least for the moment, I haven't had trouble with this thing in months, and today it's just, wants to pop out of my ear. But there, there are conversations we have that are with people who are, at least for the moment, equals. They only happen when you let your hair down a little bit. They can be wide-ranging. Uh, they can be on just about anything. They seem momentous sometimes, like you're on the verge of solving all the problems of the world. Or you're lost in revelrous joy and laughter. In one sense, they're often just as silly and as meaningless as the first category, but they're born out of uh, a deeper trust. Sometimes it's well-placed trust, sometimes it's misplaced trust, 
But for a time, you're trusting the other person, and he or she is trusting you, and you allow yourself to be revealed more deeply and more personally. And that little bit of trust often fosters more trust. And then there's these sort of two types of conversations we have that are born out of a a disparity in, in power, or where one person is in the moment at least, more valuable than the other. These are conversations maybe in which we need certain things or want certain things and envision that the other person with whom we are conversing can help us to acquire it. Every culture has different rules about how you go about those conversations, but there's a means of making requests of one another. Sometimes you're being asked for something. Sometimes you are the asker. Uh, And when phrased as a request, it indicates that the one being request is in something of a privileged position. When it's phrased as a demand, it indicates that the one making the demand feels like they're in a privileged position. And sometimes those in a position to demand, perhaps a boss or or a father, uh, will humble themselves and, and phrase it as a request, which can be really powerful to surrender some of your measure of power and privilege to another person. But in either case, there's a hierarchy, right? Even if just in that moment, on that one particular thing, you need something that you think that person can provide. And so it creates a slight disparity. Jenna, could you give me a cup of water, please? The last category, at least that I could broadly conceive of, we could probably break these down a million ways, is when a person isn't asking for something but rather a person recognizes the need to give something. For instance, my son Elijah uh, went to a birthday party yesterday. He was excited to tell his friend, happy birthday. He wanted to offer well wishes. And I'm sure when he handed his friend the present, uh, and when his friend went to open the present, I'm sure he was excited to talk to him about the gift. He recognized, even at his young age, as a special occasion, and, and that called for happy words and, and, and heaping happy thoughts on this friend. And so he was glad to do it. Sometimes these are as simple as a, you know, a good job. Uh, and they include giving thanks for the behaviors or actions or personality of the person too. Thanks. Thanks for being such a great friend, perhaps. Again, for one moment... There's one person in these conversations who's in the position of privilege. They're the one receiving thanks or honor or well wishes. This morning we are launching into a series about prayer. Seven messages, to be exact, with one week off for an Easter message. And I've entitled the series Speaking with God. Because I want us to dig in on the what, when, why, how of Christians like you and me speaking with God. It's not a study of different prayers, per se. It's a study of how Christians ought to pray. Although broadly topical, we're going to tackle this series by expositing seven specific texts of Scripture. I don't know about you, but prayer is a struggle for me. It's a struggle in the good times. It's perfunctory and dry in the bad times. Sometimes it's far more non-existent than it ought to be. And my guess is I'm not alone in that. I've heard as much from some of you. 
So we're digging in as a course correction, as a refresher, as a fresh word, or maybe for you it's a gentle reminder, wherever you are in your prayer life, to begin making prayer the priority it ought to be at this church. Prayer is, at its root, a conversation with God. Where does prayer fit into the spectrum of those conversation types? Well, while I can make a case for all four, most prayer, and and perhaps maybe most helpfully to break things down, most prayer fits into the last two categories. We're dealing with a king, a father, a lord, a master. Sometimes we are bringing things to him. Sometimes we are hoping for things from him. But they are conversations of the two latter types. I apologize. I'm <clears throat> Dude, I'm going to need another water. I don't know what's going on in the back of my throat right now, but. Yeah. Uh, sure, why not? We'll give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? I can annoy all of you with sucking sounds. <clears throat> Thank you. And that's certainly, though, what those latter two types are what we see in, in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, our passage this morning. I've entitled it, A Beginner's Guide to Prayer. It's the words of Jesus to his disciples. And he tells them explicitly, here's how to pray. For those of you who are new, I'm not usually this needy. Uh, <laughs> As a teaching on how the followers of Jesus are to pray from Jesus himself, this is about as fundamental as it gets. If you grew up in church, you probably memorized this prayer in some translation or another. But have you ever really studied it? This morning we will. The prayer is all about prayer proper. What I mean by that is the English word prayer means to ask or request. We use it more broadly than that today. But that was the original sense of the word. And every part of this prayer is a request. There are five to seven of them, depending on how you count. And I'm going to treat them as six requests this morning. And the first two are God-centered. Well, the last four we could say are man-centered. I don't really like that, but it makes a nice way to break it down. So six points under two broad Headers, that's my outline. And after looking at them, we're going to see a theme emerge from these that I think ought to shape our prayer lives. God-centered prayers. We'll start there, verse 9. But as we do, we do need to put some context around it. This prayer is called the Lord's Prayer because it's a prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his followers. But it wasn't really a prayer for Jesus himself to pray. If you want to read about a prayer that Jesus himself might pray, look at John 17, his relationship with the Father is different than ours. But it is the Lord's Prayer because it's the one he taught us to pray. And the context is worth preaching on, and and one day we will get into the broader context, but there are a few things we need to say that are really, really important. Um, Jesus has been preaching on religious hypocrisy. And he specifically points out some Religious Jews who make a big show of their prayers. 
they pray in a way to draw attention to themselves by doing it in public places while wearing ostentatious clothing. And Jesus was not impressed. But neither was he impressed by the religious customs of the pagans, the Gentiles, the Greek and Roman rabble of the surrounding area. They tended to babble as they prayed. They went on and on. Perhaps they believed that specific formulations of words, like, a, like an incantation, uh, would be very pleasing to their gods. Or that long-winded prayers would be better heard by their deaf idols. And Jesus wasn't impressed with these either. And he takes a moment to give instruction to his disciples on just how he thinks they, we, should pray. He's emphatic in what he says. Pray then like this. And here's how we are to be. And he suggests our Father in heaven. And that bears comment too. Every word, our. Jesus is giving a prayer to Christians and to the Christian community. He's not speaking in his own voice. He's speaking in his disciples' voice. And suggests that we are to pray in the plural. And so we learned that there is a time and a place for corporate congregational prayer. When we gather together and we pray together, when we hear the prayer and give our joint amen, that is a good thing. And it also does suggest that this prayer was probably used most generally as a congregational prayer, not necessarily as an individual's prayer. doesn't mean it's wrong to pray individually. But there are plural forms throughout this prayer. And so it was probably something that the early Christians, well, actually we know from history they did, prayed together. Father. Jesus tells his disciples to approach God as Father. And, and while not entirely without precedent in the Old Testament, it's a pretty radical shift. Rather than Yahweh, or Lord, or Master, or King, which are all appropriate for sure, Jesus tells us that we can approach God as Father. A term of intimacy and familiarity. Now, he gives this to his followers, his disciples. And apparently the early church so understood this that non-Christians who weren't fully members of the church yet, though they might have learned this prayer in some of the classes and teaching, were uh, strictly told, don't pray this prayer. It's not for you. And there's something to that. It's a prayer for believers. Only true followers of Jesus have God as their father. And while we recognize that there is a power dynamic between us and God, he's, he's in the heavens. He is God in the heavens. He is far beyond this realm. Nevertheless, he allows us to approach him in the most tender terms. And some of you, let's throw it out there. Maybe you, you have abusive fathers or um, perhaps for some other reason the idea of God's fatherhood is troubling for you. And first, let me say I'm sorry that you've endured that. So let's, let's get that out there. That's, it's, it's horrible. But let me encourage you, too. God's fatherhood is a model for all good fatherhood. God's character reveals what a father should be. Don't judge God 
by your human father's imperfections. Judge your human father by God's loving and tender example. Just as a human should have no fear in approaching his human father with his needs and concerns, so the Christian should have no fear in approaching her heavenly father with the same. And when you put that in the context of our own sinfulness, the ways we have hurt God and, and, and pained him and, and rebelled against him, the fact that we can approach God as father rather than an exacting tyrant is nothing short of amazing. But of course he is in heaven, and, and that means that he is above all of the fickle, changing nature of this world, and he can be fully relied on. He's going nowhere. He is always accessible to the Christian, to the believer, wherever the believer is. But his heavenly dwelling also sets up the concerns of these God-centered prayers that follow. And the first one that we see is, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is the verbal form of holy. Very literally, Jesus says Christians should pray that God's name be made holy. But that's not quite the sense. After all, God's name is holy already. So that demands some clarification. What, what do we mean when we say God's name is holy? What are we even saying? And I think we need to address holy. We need to address name. Start with name. Your name, in the ancient world in particular, but still to some degree today, it was your character. It was your reputation. It was what you stood for. It was what you were defined by. It was almost synonymous with your, your essence. Just like when we hear of the name of a famous person or a person we know, it brings up connotations, right, of who they are and what they are, good or bad. We say that a person has a good name or they have a bad name in their community. And it was the same in the ancient world, but, you know, heightened probably exponentially. To say we want God's name to be holy is to say that we want, we, we are saying that we want everything about God, his character, his reputation, his very substance, to be marked as holy. But what of holy? What do you mean by that? Well, maybe most basically it means to be set apart as unique, special, deserving of a particular honor. Things can be holy in comparison to other things to some degree. God, however, is absolutely holy, which means he's unique among all persons, all things. He is deserving of particular honor by comparison to anything and, and everything. He is entirely holy, without peer and without rival. He is by himself. So then what are we asking for when we say, Hallowed be thy name? Well, we're, saying, we're not saying that God's name be any more holy than it already is, of course. That would be unimaginable. We are praying, rather, that God's name would be recognized as holy. We want the world, even the universe, and everything that fills it, to recognize that God is uniquely set apart and do all reverence and all honor and all praise. 
We'll come back to that. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are sometimes treated as two requests, and I'm going to treat them as, as one because they are so tightly intertwined. The Jews of Jesus' day longed for the advent of God's kingdom. They believed that God would send his special anointed king, a descendant of the great King David, the Messiah, who would put down the foes of Israel and establish a golden age of blessing. Their general aspirations were correct. But their specific hopes were a little misfounded. Jesus was that Messiah. But his kingdom was not of this world, as he told his interrogator, Pontius Pilate. Nevertheless, even Jesus looked forward to the coming of this kingdom when the kingly rule of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, in one sense, God's will already is done on earth. Nothing happens outside God's sovereign plan. Uh, Proverbs 16, 33 reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. But that doesn't mean that everything is ideal. Like with us, there's many different senses in which we have a will. For instance, I may will that I be rich. And frankly, there's a lot of economic pursuits that I could engage in and that I'm free to undertake that would very likely afford me a more lucrative existence. Pastoring generally does not fall into that category. Uh, So why don't I change course? Well, because I desire to do this work more than I desire to make a lot of money, and I can't necessarily have both of those things in the same way at the same time. You could go to McDonald's with a buck fifty in your pocket, and you could think that both a McDouble and a McChicken sound really good, and you want them both. I don't know why, but you do. But you've only got money for one, and so you have to decide what sounds best to you right now at that moment, or which one you think is going to provide the most satisfaction or the least depression in the long term. In the same way, there are things that God desires that he doesn't choose to bring about for any number of reasons, some of which are known to us, but many of which are hidden from us. God desires no one to sin, for example. I think we'd all agree on that. And yet, nevertheless, he destined the Son, the Messiah, Jesus, to be unjustly accused, tortured, and executed on behalf of sinners so that all who place their trust in him might be rescued from the deserved consequences of our crimes. But in his heavenly abode, it is a kingdom of light a place removed from sin and evil and death. And that sort of existence does not occur here right now. But God promises a time when that heavenly kingdom will descend to the earth and the dwelling place of God will intersect with the dwelling place of man in space and time. Injustice will be put away. The unrighteous will be put down. And God's kingdom will will reign across the earth and his will will be done here then in the same way as it is done in heaven now. That's a beautiful picture. It's our blessed hope. Truly on that day, God's name will be hallowed. It will be set apart as holy in the minds and hearts of all the world's inhabitants. 
step back from these two requests for just a moment. I noticed a few facts about them. We cannot pray these things in sincerity unless we truly want them to come about. And we truly cannot say we want them to come about unless we are actively living and working to see them brought about. What do I mean? Well, as Christians, we ought to long for that advent described so beautifully by John in Revelation 21. He writes, Then I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But it's also true that the kingdom of God has already begun to encroach the kingdom of this world. In Jesus, God came to dwell among us, and as a people... And his disciples at first, and then larger and larger crowds of disciples, and then even down through the ages to us here in Cleveland in 2018, we are mysteriously incorporated into Christ, and the Holy Spirit indwells in us individually and, and collectively as a body so that we are a, a temple of God. And so Jesus rightly taught his disciples in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. God's kingdom, his reign, is encroaching this world in every heart that surrenders to his good rule. And so his name is set apart as holy among the congregation of the faithful. And as we pray for this to be more fully realized, how can we do so in good conscience unless we likewise are actively preaching the good news? The good news of forgiveness of sin under God's good rule to a dead and dying world. Do we sincerely want God's name to be regarded as holy and for his rule to expand over the expanse of earth if we're not part of spreading that hope? Whether the church prohibits non-believers from praying this prayer or not, there very much is a sense in which an unbeliever simply cannot meaningfully pray this prayer because his or her heart cannot beat for the realization of these things. This is a decidedly Christian prayer. So now let's turn our attention to what I have called loosely man-centered petitions. It's not the best phrasing, but it clarifies what I'm trying to get across here. And so to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. The significance of this request can easily be overlooked in 21st century America, 2018 Cleveland. Bread was a staple of the ancient world. I'm on a 
ketogenic diet right now where I'm only eating proteins and fats with only the fewest incidental carbohydrates. And that would have been quite a luxury for a population that was dependent upon the most meager of rations. The vast majority of the population of ancient Palestine was poor. There was almost no middle class to speak of. And moving between the classes was functionally impossible almost 100% of the time. There were different degrees of poor, to be sure. But that might not have been much of a comfort. Most of the people would have led day-to-day -day existences. They would have been paid at the end of the workday, after which they'd likely have gone out to purchase food for the next day. They didn't receive a week, two weeks, months pay at a time. And they certainly didn't receive the kind of wages that allowed for money to be left over at the end of the day. You can imagine if no one's salaried, if you were ill and you were in bed for a couple days, you got the flu that was going around ancient Palestine, that, that was a couple days without pay and a couple days during which eating might be very, very difficult. Imagine you'd rely on family, hopefully, to scrape together what you needed. But that's a precarious existence. <clears throat> So for a first century Jew living in Palestine, what will I eat tomorrow was a present and very real concern. When we say, I don't know what we're going to have to eat, is usually staring at, you know, 100 ingredients. We're just not sure how to combine them in a useful way. But if the concern was, are you going to have the calories to survive today? You would find a way to combine them or just eat them raw, right? We don't have this problem. We have something to eat in our house. And if we don't have something to eat in our house, I'm willing to bet we have something to buy food with. And if we don't, we probably have something we own that we could sell to buy food with. And if we don't have that, I'm willing to bet that we have a pretty good idea of where we could get a free meal. And most of us are more significantly comfortable than that. It's hard to put ourselves in their shoes. But we need to. Because their precarious position allowed them to see their dependence on God much more clearly than we typically do. In this prayer is a humble request for God to give us today what we'll need to eat tomorrow. Nothing more. Our existence might not be day to day, but we must trust God to provide day by day. But our lives are much more day to day than we might at first realize. History and the internet are filled with stories of people whose lives have changed dramatically in a single moment, in a flash. And though it's not our common experience to leave this, live this sort of day to day meager existence, it's only because God in his providence has seen fit to bestow considerable blessings on our slice of the world during this slice of history. You have food in your fridge and pantry that you could live off of for weeks. And why? Because God has sovereignly provided you in abundance out of his good pleasure. As easily as it was given, it can be taken. They say most Americans live paycheck to paycheck, as it is, not because 
they have an income problem, but because they have a spending problem. Which is why sudden illness or catastrophe often sinks otherwise well-meaning, well-earning households. But when was the last time you prayed to God to provide you, provide for you, to ask God, please provide it, enough for tomorrow? Likely we are so rich that we've forgotten God's gracious provision. As Agur worried in Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In fact, in this model of prayer, the only request that involves stuff is a, a request for the meekest of provisions. Just enough to continue on one more day. On one hand, this prayer reminds us that it is okay to pray for stuff. But on the other, in the same breath, it likely embarrasses us for the stuff we ask for. Jesus teaches us to pray for our basic needs, not our extravagant wants. And it's very likely that the line between our basic needs and our extravagant wants is a lot lower than we are readily willing to admit. The next one, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You might have learned this prayer in a smoothed out wording that replaces debts with trespasses or debts with sins. So our debts becomes our sins and our debtors becomes those who have sinned against us. Debts is a more literal rendering uh, but the word does have this metaphorical meaning of sin. Uh, when we wrong someone, we owe them something. That's the underlying idea. We have to make it right with them. And when someone sins against us, they, they owe us some sort of recompense. You know, stealing is an obvious example. If someone steals $20 from me, they owe me. There's a debt of $20 there. Elsewhere, the Bible can talk about our sin as the record of debt paid by Jesus' death on the cross. So it's fair to talk about sin, but it's a good it's good to understand that our sin is a sort of debt that needs to be paid. And this request moves from the temporal, practical need of daily sustenance to the spiritual concern of our standing before God. Is it surprising that the temporal concerns are so easily set aside? But these are more weighty. The number one human predicament is that sin stands between us and God and our unrighteousness alienates us from his perfect holiness so that we stand condemned and we are in desperate danger. We need our debts forgiven. We Christians often say that if we have faith in Jesus, we are forgiven of all of our sins, even sins which we haven't committed yet. And there's truth in that, but it, it might not always be precise. It, it might be better at times, at least, to think that accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and placing our trust in him opens his bank account of grace to pay all charges. 
it's still possible to incur new charges, of course, and his grace account is more than satisfactory to cover that debt. But the typical way God would prefer to work that out with us is in the context of our relationship with him. We acknowledge our sin, we turn from it anew, and we implore his forgiveness. And so 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Asking for forgiveness for our sins demands confessing our sins because we are asking for forgiveness, so we're at least implicitly acknowledging that we are guilty and so in need of that forgiveness. So confession is to be part of our prayer life with God as well. But consider the verse as a whole again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us as we forgive others. It's different, isn't it? In fact, Jesus goes on after this prayer to explain that if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Is that a conditional forgiveness? That we only get forgiven once we forgive others? No. John Stott, the great English pastor and theologian, may have explained it the best. Stott said, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, The injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. I think he's absolutely right. I quote him because I couldn't have said it better. When we are unwilling to forgive, it is an indication that we don't understand how deep our own sin is and how greatly God has already forgiven us. And that's a scary place to be. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not an easy verse to interpret, or at least of all the verses in this prayer, this one has probably caused the most difficulty for scholars and pastors. And sometimes that comes out in the way different versions translate it. So I want to throw that out there. If if it's rendered a little different in your Bible, that's why. But the general thrust in most of those versions remains the same. Here's how I think it's best to take it. God doesn't tempt us. The Bible clearly tells us that God doesn't tempt us. He does often test us, but those are good things. They help us to grow in holiness and faith. They're not the kind of things we would ask God to take from us. Well, we might in our selfishness, but those tests are there. They're good gifts from God, and God certainly wouldn't teach us to pray against them. So neither of these things could be on the face of things, the meaning that Jesus is getting at. Instead, I think the sense is probably that we're asking God to not allow us to succumb to temptation. We know that we will face temptations of sin, but God, and we know that all things without faith, all all we have without faith is sin. And so we desperately need God working in our lives in order to hold us back from our own sin. 
to keep us from our own devices. We are asking God, please strengthen me to fight sin by your grace. God, please give me the wisdom to avoid sin's deceit by your grace. Let me not fall in the midst of temptation when it comes. And so Paul can write to the Christians living in Corinth, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So deliver us from evil? Well, that's just the flip side of it. He's saying the same thing in the positive, what he had just said in the negative. Rescue us from the evil that lies in wait for us, ready to destroy and devour us. Taken as a whole, these last prayers look to God to meet our, boast, our most basic needs, to keep us in right relationship with him, and to grow and maintain holiness ourselves. What do our prayers typically consist of? Set aside for a moment whether we should pray these exact words or not. Um, I think we probably should sometimes. Um, but Jesus is certainly teaching us how to pray. Do our prayers reflect this type of pattern? Are these the type of requests we put before God? Or are requests different? How so? How would you categorize the things that you ask for, that you request before God? Just, just focus on the requesting side of things in light of these. But take another step back. And let's look at all of these requests again. Hallowed be your name. The scripture says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 15.4 Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13 Give us our daily bread. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 32-33. Forgive us our sins. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 1 John 2.12 Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
Revelation 7, 13 through 17. Every single request mentioned here is something that while we strive for and long for in this life is absolutely assured to be true. They're promises of God. They are surer than tomorrow's sunrise. There is a significant, meaningful sense in which when we go to God in prayer, in the sense at least of asking God for things, we are praying for the promises of God. Jesus teaches us to pray for the promises of God. Why? Why would we pray for the promises of God? Well, because the promises of God are the things that God has assured that in his heart of hearts that he desires will absolutely come about. As we draw closer to Jesus, our desires, our heartbeat becomes more like his heartbeat. We desire the things that Jesus desires. And if Jesus gets the things that he desires ultimately, and he does, then guess what we get? If we desire the same things as Jesus, we get what we want. There's a very much a sense in which prayer is bringing our will in alignment with God's will. And prayer is the means in God's wisdom that he has ordained to bring about his good will. He wants us to be a praying people. He wants to bring about his will on earth in the context of his relationship with the redeemed people. And so what does your prayer life look like? What are your requests? Do you pray after Jesus' instructions? Do you pray for the promises of God? Or do you pray for things that are significantly less than that? I think if we were to grab a hold of these things, it might radically change the way we think about prayer how we approach prayer, and how we are able to be faithful in continuing in prayer. And something we're going to unpack as we move through the next six messages in this series. But I can think of no better way to conclude this message than let's say these hours and these we's together. And let's read and pray to our God together as, his, as our Lord taught us to pray. Join me and read from Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Father, may it be Come, Lord Jesus. It's his name that we pray. Amen.